Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. As a franchise, Star Trek is very proud to be a progressive TV show. But that raises more questions than it answers. What does it mean for a series like Star Trek to be progressive? And does Star Trek live up to its high ideals in this regard? Since the original series, Star Trek has prided itself on representation of female and non-white characters, presenting a vision of a future without discrimination on the basis of gender and race. But, as Adam and I will discuss today, this is a vision with serious blind spots, including the franchise's long-standing and notorious failures to represent or acknowledge queer issues and relationships. Moreover, being a progressive show is not just a question of casting. It also goes to the values of the show itself, how it understands economics, politics, the role of force and violence, and humanity's relationship with the environment. Sometimes, Star Trek has presented a humane and positive vision. But often, Star Trek has fallen short of its stated ideals in how it has addressed these topics. In today's episode, Adam and I are going to be discussing Star Trek and progress. Is Star Trek a progressive, a left-wing, or a liberal show? How is Star Trek engaged with or represented conservative or reactionary ideas? and we'll address one of the key questions behind Star Trek's progressive ideals. Can a show about a military vessel that goes where no one has gone before by visiting the people who already live there truly be progressive? Hi, welcome to uh, the Star Trek Mirror Universe podcast. As always, I'm Adam Prosser, and I'm joined by uh, uh, Douglas McDonald-Norman. G'day. And... uh, (laughs) <laughs> Hello from Australia and Canada, respectively. And uh, yeah, so uh, we sort of wanted to uh, take a look at some of the, uh, uh, yeah, as, as basically Douglas said, as, as uh, uh, take a look at the progressive nature of Star Trek and whether it lives up to those ideals or not. Uh, there was a very, I've, I've discovered since we recorded the last episode, uh, there was a very good YouTube video, uh, or actually a YouTube uh, broadcaster called uh, Steve Shives, uh, who I've I've watched a couple of his videos. He was he was really really good, and he did a couple of episodes uh, that were more or less on this same topic. Uh, so I'll try not to repeat myself. But um, yeah, he he pointed one of the things he pointed out was that there are conservatives who really like Star Trek, which seems strange as it's probably the most progressive mainstream science fiction movie or TV show franchise that's out there. Uh, and what is it that they like about it? And he also did one that asked, you know, is Star Trek as progressive as it says it is? Uh, it's very good. Anyway, check him out if you haven't. Steve Shives on YouTube. He's 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 really good. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it does raise a lot of interesting questions. And uh, as always, it I think uh, has to start with uh, Gene Roddenberry. 
and uh, and what he uh, <laughs> what what he believed in and what he wanted the show to be. Um, he made a fairly big deal, especially after the show had ended, uh, that about Star Trek being progressive. Um, if they didn't necessarily emphasize the political as that political aspect of it at first, it was always implicit. I would say I I don't know if he ever you know, loudly said, yes, this is a progressive show. It's about, uh, it's about, you know, leftist ideas. Uh, but I think that's fairly clear in everything else that they discussed and the idea of a positive future, an inclusive future, a utopian future. I don't, you know, I think it's, it's fairly self-evidently, uh, presenting a progressive viewpoint. And of course, the fact that it was very, uh, it, it tended to take anti-racist, anti, anti, sexist or inclusive viewpoints, although that's something we're going to talk about. Um, but uh, yeah, as, as uh, it, it, there is a question of sort of well-meaningness versus what was actually executed on, on the show itself. So that's something uh, that, we, that we want to talk about today. I think you're absolutely right to start with Gene Roddenberry as a key figure in what Star Trek's political identity is. Because more than being wedded to a particular ideological vision, for its first 25 years at least, Star Trek's Trek's political vision isn't so much attachment to a particular ideology, it's attachment to whatever Gene Roddenberry believed at a given point in time. Now, as we've said before, the extent to which Gene Roddenberry was the driving creative force behind Star Trek is the topic of controversy and self-mythologizing, and his influence over the show waxed and waned at particular points in time. But to the extent that he appointed himself as effectively Star Trek's face or Star Trek showman, promulgating to the world what he said the show's values were or ought to be, it's very difficult to draw much of a line between what Gene Roddenberry personally believed and how Star Trek presented itself ideologically to the world. But of course that does speak to one of the key difficulties that Star Trek has faced in being a progressive TV show. It is undeniably a show that's more progressive than you would necessarily expect for a show by an for a show produced by a cop from San Francisco in the 1960s but it is still definitely a show that was driven in large part by a white male cop from San Francisco in the 1960s and the extent to which Star Trek has been in a certain in many ways bound by or shaped by the overwhelmingly white male wealthy TV producer background of so many of its driving creative forces is responsible for so many of its failures to live up to those visions. It's not necessarily a question that Star Trek has started out wanting to do the wrong thing. It's that it's lacked the imagination to look beyond the personal biographical experiences of the people who've produced it. Um... Yes, uh, that's certainly... I would apply that argument most strongly to the Berman-era Star Trek and and beyond. Um, I feel like it's a slightly different situation in the 60s and 70s with Star Trek uh, because Roddenberry, say what you will about him, uh, to start with possibly, you know, the most... uh, the, the best thing you can say about Roddenberry is that he... 
he very strongly believed in fighting racism, and that was one of his explicit goals with the show. Like he was no, he was not shy about uh, about that aspect of the show right from the start. And as much as he mythologized and sort of retroactively <laughs> justified a lot of what he did, I don't think you can really argue that. Uh, he didn't want Star Trek to be uh, a racially inclusive show and to uh, battle a lot of the issues that were uh, at play at the time. Um, he apparently, as we mentioned on an earlier show, I think that uh, he had a, another show, um, Mr. District Attorney, which uh, wanted to delve into racism in the U.S. military uh, and got into trouble for that reason. Uh, it almost comes off as like Roddenberry just loved picking fights with TV producers so much, and he thought, you know, racist issue <laughs> issues of race is what would get them into fights. Um, and there were other people on the show like that, like Robert Block and Harlan Ellison, who clearly liked to fight uh, as well, and had the same kind of mentality. Um, it was... Very much, uh, there's the, the, the famous saying about, uh, that Kurt Vonnegut said uh, later about how during the Vietnam War, uh, basically any serious artist was writing about the Vietnam War and how bad it was, uh, and the cumulative effect was like dropping a banana cream pie off of, of a stepladder, basically. Uh, but it's also, but not to be uh, disparaging about it, but um, it's also true, I think, that um, most serious artists at that time were addressing the issue of race um, in America. Like, it was front and center. Um, you know, Martin Luther King was shot while Star Trek was in production. Um, you know, the, there were a lot of, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Movement had just just ended when it, well, not ended, but it the Civil Rights Movement had had its major victories right before Star Trek went on the air. And um, the, uh, so it was front and foremost. And then, of course, uh, Nichelle Nichols on the show was literally... She, you know, she she was in the world of uh, black civil rights uh, movements. She, you know, famously, she spoke to Martin Luther King. Um, there was uh, uh, um, also uh, Jean Kuhn's assistant, who I've uh, mentioned before, and she was apparently literally friends with uh, Malcolm X. Uh, so they, they definitely had those voices in the show, uh, talking about race as an issue. But then at the same... So, so, they, the Star Trek producers, Roddenberry and the others, knew at least to say, yes, we're going to do a show that is about uh, racism and about uh, and, and taking the po the the good side. I don't I don't think they ever took a side <laughs> uh, that would be called uh, you know racist uh, at least intentionally. Uh, it, when they did drift into racism, it was sort of well-meaning blinkered racism rather than um, you know we're 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 going to. Uh, fight this these this uprising it wasn't like you know people talking about the black lives matter movement right now where they'll say oh it's it's creating divisiveness and you know like there was none of that kind of thing everyone acknowledged i think behind the scenes that you know uh, that america had problems with race and they had to be addressed um so that was definitely something that is a mark in i would say roddenberry and star trek's favor at the time but of course in ex that in execution <laughs> and how the the show comported itself, uh, there would be a lot of uh, issues in that regard. I think that's absolutely right, and I think that the original series actually presents, in many ways, a far more interesting. I, I think it, it, it's a lot harder to classify in terms of a dominant political vision or indeed in terms of a dominant political approach than Berman Star Trek. 
And I think you're absolutely right to attribute a lot of a lot more credit for bravery to the original series, given the political climate in which it was created, and given that it genuine that Roddenberry, to his credit, seems to have been far less conflict averse than Rick Berman was. Roddenberry is undeniably a man who had serious blind spots, but his zest for conflict, even if sometimes conflict for conflict's sake, produced far better results, and I think came from a far more sincere place than Berman's desire to placate the worst imagined notion of what the American public would put up with. I think you're absolutely right to point out the role of, I think it's Andy Richardson as Gene L. Kuhn's assistant, as pointing out both the diversity of voices behind the scenes on Star Trek in the 1960s, still a show dominated by white men, but in which women like Andy Richardson or DC Fontana did play a meaningful creative role in the show, and in pointing out the extent to which Star Trek didn't operate independently of the political ferment at the time. You're absolutely right that Star Trek, the original series, very seldom set out to produce uh, shows that were driven by what it would have considered to be a conservative political message. It saw itself as being on the side of the angels and saw itself as being a vehicle for social change. I think, however, sometimes there are examples of episodes on the original series that do not think through their premises clearly enough. I've mentioned the Omega Glory a couple of times on the show as sort of the nadir in that regard, a in which Kirk and crew visit a planet in which the heroic white Yangs are fighting against the explicitly Asian comms in a battle for supremacy over the planet that is ultimately revealed to be a reenactment of the American struggle against communism, with the Yangs being effectively um, a mirrored development of the United States on another planet. I think that sort of reductive, we are in a global fight for supremacy that's universalized and essentialized in character with explicit racial back backing to ideological conflict is as close as Star Trek ever came to endorsing an extraordinarily conservative view of the Cold War. And I, now, I, I, I do want to jump in, please, sorry please. for a second, sorry, I, I'll continue with your thought, but it should be noted with the Omega Glory, I'm not, I'm not going to defend that episode because it's terrible, but um, it should be noted that I think that was derived more... Uh, from a very common thing in the 60s, which was the post-apocalyptic satire. It was it was Roddenberry doing a post-apocalyptic satire in that context. And certainly, um, it's not... It, it's a very chest-beating pro-America story. But at the same time, I think, like, when they have Kirk dramatically reading the Constitution uh, at the end, it's not necessarily meant to be, see how great we are and how bad the commies are. I think it's more a sense of this war has become insane and you've forgotten the founding values that we're supposed to adhere to. I think that's actually the message he was trying to send with that specifically. So, and I mean, it's not a good portrayal of like, you know, there's a certainly a racially tinged thing and there's, there's lots of problems with it, but I do think his intent wasn't to say America's the best and smash the commies. I think his intent was this war has gone insane and look at what's going to happen to civilization. Anyway. See, I actually agree with that, because I think if you'd asked Gene Roddenberry, are you intending to tell a story about how the United States needs to smash communism, he would have said no. 
because that's something that we don't see elsewhere in his writing. He seems to have been able to at once hold an intellectual view and yet to make this show anyway. Which, And I think you're absolutely right to point to the show's roots in other types of genre storytelling, which really speaks to a lot of the key failings of Star Trek come from this unthinking adoption of dramatic tropes from elsewhere or of cliches or of particular types of sci-fi storytelling without really analysing the underlying premises of these or working out how those can be problematic when translated into new settings or indeed how they may clash with Star Trek's ideals itself. This is something that Elizabeth Sandifer has written really, really interestingly about in the context of Doctor Who. How, for example, um, Talons of Wing Cheyenne, which is at once a classic of Doctor Who and at the same time astoundingly racist, doesn't necessarily come from a desire to produce a really, really racist episode of TV. It comes from the fact that they're telling a Sherlock Holmes story, they're doing a pastiche of early 20th century detective stories. In doing so, they're doing a homage to Yellow Peril storytelling. They're adopting the tropes of a particular genre, not because they share the political values of that genre in and of themselves, but simply because they're trying to evoke and homage a particular type of story. And in doing so, they're unconsciously or unthinkingly picking up the values which animated that type of storytelling. Now, that's not to either excuse or to condemn the writers of Doctor Who, or indeed the writers of Star Trek, it is what it is. When you're doing a series like Star Trek or Doctor Who that mines the history of genre as inspiration for its stories, it creates an additional burden that often you're drawing upon the values and the politics of a very different context in a very different time. And that's sort of what the Omega Glory falls into. It's not so much that they've set out to say, we are in an eternal war against communism that can only be won through the ultimate triumph. They're making a Star Trek story that's not really thinking through how Star Trek's values differ from all too many of the values of the type of story that they're homaging. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, that that is right. And I mean, um, <laughs> that the irony that, you know, not thinking through the values you're promoting has been one of the biggest failings of liberalism in the last 50, 60, 70 years, uh, post-World War II era, uh, that, that it, it means well, but it's not, you know, it doesn't want to go back to first principles and, and, and analyze, you know, what it's talking about uh, very well. Uh, and, in, and I mean, it, it, that actually, I think that really uh, becomes a factor in the Berman era. Uh, we did an episode of uh, my other podcast, What Mad Universe. Uh, we had a guest uh, writer on Dylan Roth, who's written a lot about Star Trek in a lot of places. Uh, he had, uh, I remember him saying at one point um, uh, that the thing about Star Trek is, in many ways, it hasn't really been challenging, progressively challenging, or, or challenging in a sen in the sense of progressive politics in since the original series. That as much as Next Generation is squarely rooted in the liberal era assumptions of Star Trek, like the, the liberal side won whatever battle there was to be won in Star Trek in the old show. As we discussed in another episode, there was maybe, you know, a conflict in terms of like attitudes toward the Vietnam War. There were aspects that might pop up in the old show because there were so many different writers with so many different attitudes. Um, and, you know, I think you can argue by the 
early on in Next Generation, uh, that the the you know the liberal side won, uh, and that's that was the baseline assumption all throughout the '90s in Star Trek, basically. Um, but at the same time, it was a baseline assumption, and it wasn't a we're going to really challenge and shake things up. It was well, this is just how things are. I remember growing up watching Berman era Star Trek: The Next Generation, and it was just like, well, of course racism is bad, and of course. You know, oh, these people who don't understand that it's bad to be racist are silly and they need to be set right. Like, that was always just be the basic assumption of Star Trek as far as I would interpret it. It wasn't until later I could go back and say, oh, well, you know, that's a bit of a, you know, if you paint the Cardassians as, as you know, um, uh, you know, there are different ways you could interpret, uh, you know, the Cardassians as, uh, as a as a Red Scare menace, you know. Oh, that's a bit reactionary, for instance. Although, of course, you can interpret them also as, you know, the bad side of the U.S. There's many different takes on it. You, you can you can occasionally see a, a bit of a reactionary thread through it, Star Trek, but you have to you have to go back and look at it as an adult. When I was a kid, I sort of that was the baseline assumption. But in by virtue of the fact that it was a baseline assumption, uh, and the fact that it was sort of repeating the kind of things that. I, I I almost I hate to use this term, but it it, it wasn't in a bit of a bubble, <laughs> for lack of a better term. It was it was basically a bunch of liberal writers who agreed with each other about uh, a lot of stuff. I I, I mean I know there were writers who challenged that, as it were. But in terms of what made it onto the air, it was very much yeah. Well, racism is bad. Let's do a show about racism is bad. Well. In 1993, was anyone like, no, racism is good? I, well, there were people like that out there, I guess. There were, there were, you know, the conservatives in the U.S. In many ways, that whole uh, culture war stuff didn't really start to get ginned up until almost the end of Deep Space Nine. I wouldn't say it was a huge factor during the production of TNG or Deep Space Nine. Um, of course, we do have to talk about how very early in uh, Next Generation, they did do uh, the episode Code of Honor, which is... Uh, kind of ridiculous because it's it's more racist than anything produced in the 60s show and it was made 20 years later uh which is a bit of an embarrassment and it's always that's always been an embarrassment to star trek i understand uh there were some behind the people uh, behind the scenes people who literally got fired over that one and there was some actual question of uh whether that that might be a, an example of someone on star trek who did have a bit more of a reactionary viewpoint now i i i can't make any claims uh, for sure, but it, there, there was, there have been rumors about the making of that episode that it led to a bit of a shakedown behind the scenes of Next Generation. Beyond just, well, we meant to say something good and we whiffed it. It might have actually been uh, uh, worse than that. Uh, but clearly, after that, uh, next, I mean, it's not a coincidence that uh, Michael Dorn is not in that episode, uh, for instance. Um, but um, going forward, it's pretty clear that Next Generation uh, had a very strong intent of, you know being well-meaning, but there were, of course, multiple episodes that then ended up uh, missing the mark somewhat. And they and they didn't they didn't want to really challenge the status quo, and they didn't... Um, that would sometimes lead them to trouble. I don't know how uh, quickly we're going to get to the outcast, but that's that's probably the standard bearer for that sort of uh, that sort of issue. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, sorry, I'll throw it over to you, Douglas. You wanted to, you wanted to say something? I can see. Well, actually, just before we get to Next Gen, I think it can actually be contrasted in a really interesting way with Turnabout Intruder, which is the last episode of the original mm -hmm. series. Turnabout Intruder, 
the series finale of one of the most influential science fiction shows of all time involves an insane ex-lover of Captain Kirk's who decides to swap bodies with Captain Kirk and become captain because women can't be starship captains. No, no, oh, hang on. Uh, we want it to be totally correct about that. She says, your world of starship captains doesn't include women, which could be interpreted a few different ways. Yes, you could say it could mean your in the sense of Captain Kirk is the object of the sentence, or it could mean your in the sense that Starfleet mm. is the object of the mm. sentence. It would be, I mean, you're the one who lives in Canada. In the French, in the Quebecois French dubbed version of the episode, does she say tout? <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. I have not seen the French dubbed version of uh, Next Generation, of, of original Terminator. Right. We, ha we have, all right, we've got some homework for next time. <laughs> but maybe we'll put it this way. Turnabout Intruder is either incredibly sexist or just pretty sexist. And we don't know precisely which one because the English language lacks a difference between the singular and plural second person <laughs> address. Yeah. But it's not an enormously great dilemma for Star Trek to be in. Now, it's important to contrast that against the world depicted by The Next Generation. The original series depicts a world in which, at least on one interpretation, there are still explicit barriers to the participation of women. Or indeed, even on the charitable interpretation, where a major character is accused of having a mental world that still allows for barriers to the participation of women. That is to say, it's a world that more closely evokes that of the 1960s of explicit, express forms of discrimination. In Next Gen, by contrast, those express forms of discrimination have gone away. The discrimination that we see in the show tends to be that of unspoken silences, of omissions and simple non-representation of particular characters rather than explicitly adverting to barriers against them. And of course, the prevailing and obvious example of this to which you've alluded is the complete absence of LGBT people from the world of Star Trek in the 24th century. Now, the controversy about the outcast was prefigured by the enormous and indeed lasting controversy about David Gerald's script Blood and Fire, which was to be produce, produced for the second season of Next Gen as an explicit allegory for the HIV-AIDS crisis. That script was canned, and it's caused lasting bad blood to this day, both insofar as David Gerald has continued his campaign against what he sees as an explicit example of anti-gay discrimination, and insofar as it spoke to the cowardice of the show's writers in living up to their ideals, that they would rather um, present a homogenised, safe version of the future in which these conflicts weren't adverted to, rather than take on socio-political struggles like the original series did. And that's really epitomised by The Outcast, a show that is at least semi-explicitly about discrimination against lesbian and gay people, and in which the major character, in which, which ends with a stirring speech against discrimination, but which is still a species about Riker entering into a relationship with a character from a planet that prohibits gender who is still nonetheless played by and clearly represented as a woman. As Jonathan Frakes has repeatedly said in the decades since, if Star Trek actually
actually wanted to be bold and actually wanted to live up to its ideals, that character would have been played by a man or by someone who identified as non-binary, or indeed would have been presented in any way other than how it was, which was explicitly a relationship between Captain R- uh, Commander Riker, a man's man, and a woman. Just like the relationships that Commander Riker had every week with women. With the outcast, Star Trek had a chance to represent a relationship that to represent a relationship that would have been stigmatised in the America of the 1990s, and in doing so to have attempted to live up to the ideals that the episode was attempting to promote. But instead, it says one thing and does another. And that really, in many ways, embodies the Berman era. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it, and, and there's a larger issue, too, which is that one of the things we watch Star Trek for, presumably, is that they can deal with... Uh, you know, it, it, what they've been doing right from the start, which is they deal with social issues uh, under the guise of science fiction, which in this case means they're, uh, they're you know, reworking a real social issue that we face in the guise of something science fiction-y, um, which is, you know, always fun when you do it properly. But by dealing with LGBT issues, which Star Trek had has done a number of times, but by doing it under the guise of science fiction-y stuff, by cloaking it in science fiction, or using science fiction as a cloak, because it doesn't have to work that way, but using it as a cloak for what you're re- really talking about, you actually end up you know, erasing the issue itself, even as you're saying, well, it's a metaphor for LGBT people. But as you say, that ended up being uh, ended up being a show about cishet people, essentially, <laughs> um, both literally and not literally. Uh, the most successful pre-discovery uh, uh, manner that Trek dealt with this uh, was um, uh, arguably the character of Dax. Um, and it, uh, something that occurred to me um, the other day, I was saying, it's like, it's funny because da- Dax is both metaphorically and technically trans, but she's not literally trans. <laughs> um, it's better for this kind of um, sci-fi cloaking, uh, as you might say, uh, than a lot of the other star th- things Star Trek has done, because it is still explicitly a character who used to be a man and is now a woman and has has in fact been several genders over her life so maybe non-binary would be a better uh description uh but um so that is but in a way that you know a modern day human being could not really be because it's linked to a science fiction premise and um continuing that um the uh the episode what, what's what's the name of the episode where Dax meets her old lover? Is it rejoined. I'm sorry, rejoined. Yeah, that's the one. Um, rejoined. Yeah. In the episode uh, rejoined, uh, you know, again, what they're doing is doing an issue about the taboos of LGBT issues, but the thing that is a taboo is not has nothing to do with that. It's actually a very specific thing to troll society, which is that uh, you know trolls are not allowed to have romantic. Uh, pursue romances with uh, uh, another a symbiont which they've had a re- relationship with in a previous uh, joining, a previous host uh, and it's 
for logical reason, which I always liked, which is that, you know, if that happened, you would get, you know, there's a number of different rules about the symbionts, because the symbionts aren't supposed to just rule over the trill, which would, which would, which is what would happen if they let them, uh, among other things, continue their relationships forever. They'd just be immortal relationships. So there's a taboo against symbionts returning to their old hosts. But of course, it becomes a same-sex relationship, because both the current hosts are women. So, um, I think that was actually a legitimate and clever and valid way of doing it, uh, even though in some ways it loses a bit of juice because it's dealing with what is technically a different issue. So, <laughs> um, Deep Space Nine handled that Star Trek way of dealing with issues in, in regards to LGBT uh, better than Next Generation and better than other versions did uh, because they they cloaked it, but they still did it in such a way that they were acknowledging the LGBT aspect of the story, which I, I, I you know, I think that, that was, that was decent. Now, of course, what would have really helped, what Trek would have, uh, would have resolved these issues much faster is if they just included some same-sex or LGBT relationships on the show or LGBT characters and just overtly acknowledge that and <laughs> and then they wouldn't have to build these elaborate metaphors for everything they could have just had that then you can also do a science fiction metaphor for that stuff but you are also saying yeah but also gay people exist you know <laughs> you're, you're not you're not uh, cloaking it in this in this elaborate uh story i, I i'm so glad that you've gotten to um dax and Gen Z, uh, because i think that's really at the crux of a lot of these issues it warms my heart every few months when that image sequence from Blood Oath goes viral in which Kor says to Jadzia, Curzon, my old friend! And Jadzia says, actually, I'm Jadzia now. And he says, Jadzia, my old friend! Which is as perfect an example as you can find of um, accepting the self-identity of trans and non-binary people. Now, I sincerely doubt that it was intended in that way by the show's writers. But regardless of whether it was or not, the fact that that has been adopted as a symbol of pride, as a symbol of appropriate conduct, and that it's had that longevity, speaks to, A, the fact that this is a show that potentially could live forever, that it's a show that is open to being uh, reinterpreted, a show that's open to being owned by people who were coming at it from different perspectives to the original writers, a show that's capable of being reimagined as a progressive vehicle, even in the context of new conflicts and new struggles for liberation. Like, the fact that Deep Space Nine is still capable of having that progressive political role 20 and 30 years on is inspiring, and it speaks to... And Star Trek needs that if it's going to live forever, as we hope. But, of course, the other side of them. Yeah, I, I just want to jump in for a moment. Sorry, before I know you're, I know you're going to keep going with something else. But I did want to point something else about that. The one thing that I actually do love about that is, that, as you say, it's probably it wasn't meant as a statement on trans people or non-binary people, uh, probably. But it is interesting because it's almost a way of going the long way around. But because you're in, in, engaging in good faith, it ends up being uh, affirming. Like it, they literally just said, "Well, this is a character who was used to be a man, now is a woman via sci-fi stuff." So, how does that play out in terms of the relationship? And that's just how it played out. So, even if they weren't intending to say anything positive, it just became, "Oh, I guess that's how that would work." And as long as you're like, as long as you're just going to deal with it properly, <laughs> it becomes affirming and positive anyway, right? So, anyway. 
I'm so glad you pointed that out because that's exactly right. Ultimately, what drives it isn't political ambition. It's empathy. It's placing themselves into the shoes of the characters and bringing understanding and tolerance to it. And and in doing so, it preempts and anticipates a lot of the social and political developments of the 30 years since because it is an example of the writers looking beyond their immediate political context and being open to imagine new perspectives. Uh, if anything, you've mentioned the use of star- of cloaking devices by Star Trek in this regard, of using allegorical struggles rather than explicitly depicting LGBTQ people. And obviously it would be ideal if Star Trek had done both. But one silver lining to the fact that Star Trek has so often used veiled allegories in this regard is that they have been open to reinterpretation. They have been open to use in different contexts and that they've been able to be adopted to suit changing demands for justice as society has evolved. Certainly, you can do a lot more with Deep Space Nine's allegorical struggles than you can do with the original series explicitly having an episode about gender discrimination, whether it's Kirk's indirect discrimination or Star Trek's express discrimination in Turnabout Intruder, an episode which deservedly belongs in 1969 and was indeed pretty regressive even by that time. But of course, when we talk about um, Dax, we have to acknowledge that that is a scene about Jadzia Dax. And in doing so, we have to acknowledge what we now know about Terry Farrell's time on the show. This is a show which is produced and published in numerous jurisdictions. I don't know pretty much anything about defamation law. That's not an advertisement to prospective clients, by the way. I I, I don't accept defamation briefs for that precise reason. Um, So I'm going to be quite cautious. Terry Farrell has alleged that a significant factor in causing her to depart Deep Space Nine at the end of Season 6 was that she had been subject to routine sexual harassment for many years. This is an allegation that obviously forces us to reckon with what we're consuming when we consume Star Trek, because it shows that we can't separate the show itself from the conditions in which the show is made. The events of Deep Space Nine don't happen because it's an exact chronicle of a precise series of political developments from the years 2369 to 2375. They happen in the way that they do, because a beloved actress playing a beloved character was forced to leave the show, in part because of express sexism directed towards her, and in part because of indirect sexism, that she felt that she needed to reduce her involvement in the show because she felt that she would only have a limited life, she would only have a limited career in Hollywood because it was dictated to such a degree by youth and by presenting young women on screen. What we see in Deep Space Nine is and cannot be separated from behind-the-scenes sexism on the part of the show's producers and on the part of Hollywood as a whole. And that forces us to confront, as fans, how progressive can Star Trek be when it's made in that environment? Yeah, that's, I mean, this, of course, is a problem that (laughs) goes beyond Star Trek. It goes to, uh, you know, (laughs) to Hollywood in general, as we've seen a lot of in the last few years, unfortunately. Um, And, and, I mean, then when we go back to Gene Roddenberry himself again, uh, we deal with uh, the fact that, you know, there have been some allegations about Roddenberry. Uh, certainly he was a 
<laughs> a guy who um, had some interesting ideas about sex uh, and um, became pretty obsessive on the subject later in life. Um, he... I, 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 you know, I, of course we're dealing with the rumor mill and innuendo here. Like you say, I don't want to, I don't want to go too much down any given rabbit hole. So I don't know what uh, he can be reasonably accused of. He seems to have been likely having affairs. Um, but again, this is a rumor. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe should I, cut um, that out? I, I, I <laughs> should I not look, say that? I, I, I don't know. I, I think you, Look, Gene Roddenberry's been dead for thirty years. I think it is. I think I think we can fairly yeah, say fair that Gene Roddenberry was widely rumored within his lifetime to have had numerous affairs, um, and indeed that he was he, he has mm. been alleged to have made sexually inappropriate comments to people who worked around him, and indeed, especially in the making of Next Gen, that right. his increasingly prurient fascination with sex seems to have gone beyond simply being um gone well beyond the bounds of anything that could be characterized as open-minded towards the realm of either comments that were inappropriate in a workplace and indeed potentially spoke to his ill health in later life in that his obsession on the topic seems to have gone well beyond that which was um gone well beyond that which was appropriate within his professional role. And I think we can say that because he's been dead for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, hopefully, yes. I, I, I mean, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a shock to anyone to know that Roddenberry definitely was a bit, at the very least, a bit of a lech. And there are there are worse allegations out there. Uh, you know, it's funny what you said. As you said, it's it's not just open-mindedness. It was, I want to have lots and lots of sex all the time. Um, there is also a story being told uh, in, I think it was in the 50-year 50 uh, year mission, uh, about how uh, Roddenberry actually, uh, ironically, we're talking about the LGBT aspect, but apparently Roddenberry kept pushing for more sexuality in Next Generation, which does peek through once in a while in episodes like Justice, uh, Angel One to an extent. Uh, and he, interestingly, he was not coming at it, he didn't seem to be coming at it from a perspective of, I'm a manly man, I'm going to have lots of girlfriends. It was very much like he wasn't as, he, he, he didn't care as much about the gender binary, oddly enough. And it, there are rumors that in the Riza episode, or it's been claimed that in the, the Riza episode, Captain's Holiday, uh, the episode that introduces Riza, uh, that he literally wanted it to be a very like queer-friendly space when Picard went there, that you would see that it was an orgy planet, but it was an orgy planet for, you know, all genders, for all inclinations, uh, that it was, you know, that it was as inclusive as possible, and that he really wanted to push it and with, in a way that would not have gotten on television in 1991, obviously, <laughs> was that like that was the the the, the issue there uh putting aside any other problems that uh trek has with lgbt issues but um but again that that may have been I, i'm not sure that was so, so much of a considered open-minded thing as roddenberry pursuing his own uh let's say passions <laughs> later in life in ways that may not have been uh incredibly healthy uh and then yeah yeah it, it does seem that um that you know, he, he, he had a lot of female staffers who weren't uh, particularly happy back in the original series as well. Um, again, Andrew Richardson has some some nasty things to say in him on that regard. Um, 
but you know, it is actually funny though. Um, and and then and then of course when you look at what's actually on the show in the original series, but actually Next Generation is guilty of this, and and even Deep Space Nine to an extent uh, of not always being the best in terms of female representation or female uh, issues, as it were. Um, that Voyager was the one that really turned that around more than any of the other shows, even as as much as Deep Space Nine and Next Generation had good some good female characters, uh, Next Generation maybe struggled a bit more than it should have at the time with uh, female like with its two female characters being the doctor and the psychotherapist, and uh, you know, and and often being marginalized in stories. And going back to the original series, of course, what you ultimately had was sort of a cocktail party in outer space with women in ridiculously short skirts and, 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 uh, definitely more than a small whiff of the locker room. Well, uh, people have argued that, you know, Kirk was never as much of a ladies' man as he's usually portrayed as in popular media. Uh, there is nevertheless that sense of, oh yeah, we're all, uh, we're all bros here. <laughs> and he, he did have a lot of love interests. There were a lot of uh, sexy babes on the or original show. It wasn't what what a modern viewer would call a, uh, a feminist paradise. Which makes it very interesting to me that when you look at the cage, and again, we're going back to cage, which is sort of what Star Trek was originally intended to be. Um, while that has its issues as well, uh, I mentioned Steve Shives, he, the video he did about, he talked about it, does mention these issues with the cage. Uh, that number one is a really, would have been a really great uh, character to have on uh, on Star Trek as, from a feminist perspective. Like the, essentially the second lead, arguably you could argue whether it was going to be Spock or her, but one of the three leads was going to be a woman, and a woman who's a very competent and in fact had the Spock role at that point. She was the intellectual logical one. Spock would have been characterized in a different way if the show had continued. Um, which is really fascinating to me. Now, the episode itself does have problems where it characterizes her her logical, highly rational, highly professional and competent nature as being, oh, she's overcompensating for things and their, their issues and so forth. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not great in that regard. But nevertheless, if the show had continued for three years with that dynamic of Pike, number one, and Spock, um, that would have been, um, like, I, I don't think you could argue that that wouldn't have been a, a, real, uh, a real blow for feminism. Like, that would have been very, very good to see a TV science fiction show with a female co-lead. Um, and, and, uh, you know, in a way that, and considering how much female fans latched onto the show as it eventually became in a way that wasn't necessarily very accommodating to female fandom in the first place, um, consider what it would have been like if you'd had a character like number one as, as the co-leads. I, I think, I think that it, it's very interesting that Roddenberry, probably didn't intend he he wasn't necessarily the one who wanted all the you know all the the sexiness and all the 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 the, the male uh the phallocentric nature of the show <laughs> as it became uh, it doesn't seem to have come from roddenberry per se it seems like his original intention was was something a little different which unfortunately we didn't get but still you know it's it's interesting that it was out there i think you're absolutely right that there is there is lost potential in the cage that could have been followed up on. As it is, the show that we have is one in which there is an enormous spectrum of women who could potentially be in love with Jeffrey Hunter. And I think 
it, it, and uh, but I completely agree. It would have been really, really interesting to see how number one would have been characterized going forward. In the cage itself, we have, of course, that introductory line in which um, Pike says, "Strange to see a woman on the bridge," and then he turns to number one and says, "Oh, no offense, I uh, no no offense, number one. I don't see you as a woman at all," which is obviously bad, and which potentially speaks to the uh, the extent to which the cage itself wasn't intending to represent number one as part of a diversity of female exp- perspectives, but as you have some women who are women and some women who are not. Um, that's one reading of it, and it's not... I, yep, sure. I, I want to jump in again. No, Sorry. <laughs> I do. I, once again, I want to defend it a little bit, uh, because I do think that was a character beat for Pike. I think the idea at this point was of an old-school guy who was now being confronted, which is obviously paralleling what was happening in the armed forces and the Navy and the military at the time mm-hmm. in the U.S. It was just that transplanted into outer space. And I think that's what was meant. what it was meant to be, was literally just a characterization of, well, what if the old-school guy's... Uh, oh, now they're so implying that Starfleet only just recently became <laughs> accessible to women, which is silly, of course, and given everything we know later. But I think that was very much supposed to be a sense of, no, it's good that now it's a female inclusive space, that there are women on starships. I don't think the show was against that. I think it was indicating that Pike was a bit behind the curve. He wasn't he was he was a bit of a dinosaur at in that point, which is which is really a big subtext of the of the cage. Like that's a that's a plot point in the cage that Pike is kind of an old school guy and he's trying to cope with this crazy modern era of twenty two sixty sixty six. No, I, I, <laughs> I definitely say that, anyway. and I think it's look. It's obviously difficult to tell because we've only got the cage. It's it's a particular window into what that show could have been. It's a relatively short. It's, it, it's, it's relatively short if that's all we get of that particular vision of Captain Pike. I, can defi- I definitely agree that Pike is intended to be a dinosaur. The, I'm purely raising it because if the show had continued along those lines, it's difficult to say whether it would have in fact shown Pike moving beyond those attitudes and if it would have been able to echo the relatively progressive trek that we actually got or whether having a character who gave voice to those attitudes infected the show to a certain extent and that's that's part of an interesting question which is i mean as as we've noted sometimes star trek depicts reactionary or conservative ideas like in the omega glory because it's intending to evoke particular genres um the question is how far does expressing conservative views on star trek actually how far actually mean that the show itself is expressing that views and how successful has the show been in effectively distancing itself from the stated views of its lead characters in this regard? And I think Enterprise Season 3, which is on our show notes, is a really, well, it's certainly the most recent controversial example of this, where you have an extremely gung-ho crew out to prevent an impending attack on Earth, which is explicitly paralleled to 9-11, who are at least at first driven by anger and resentment and rage, and where the show itself is definitely conscious that the characters are going through this, where the show itself is sometimes able to have other characters point out that these are not healthy emotions. 
but where I think season three of Enterprise really, really struggles at taking a coherent political stance on what its characters are going through and in holding itself objectively free from the subjective experiences of its characters. It's a show in which characters are driven by anger and resentment and rage and desire to avenge an attack on Earth and to prevent a future attack, in which the show itself often seems to be effectively going along for a ride rather than maintaining sufficient distance from what the characters are experiencing to be able to point out or indeed maintain any real perspective on the terrible things that they do along the way. I think, if anything, season three of Enterprise suffers not so much because it is completely wedded to a vision of going after the terrorists, but because it's effectively attempting to emulate or mirror other TV shows, most notably 24, which were wedded to that vision and unable to maintain sufficient sense of itself to bring an authentically Star Trek take to what a 24-style mission looks like in the Star Trek universe and with the Star Trek set of ideals. Now, I, um, I think that you're fonder of Enterprise Season 3 than I am, and so I'm interested to hear your take on it. Well, well uh, <laughs> hey, don't put me on the spot here. <laughs> no, um, no, I, I, I acknowledge that Enterprise is a show with a lot of problems. All I've said in the past is I think, on the whole, I slightly prefer Enterprise to Voyager, uh, acknowledging that both both are probably the two worst Star Trek series. Um and, and, you know, with stuff I still like a lot about both of them again. Um, but I think um, it, it's very telling, I think, that Enterprise, which of course literally premiered, I believe it was the week after 9-11, uh, struggled with it its entire run, um, mostly was doing a Star Trek show. It, there's a certain feeling of delayed reaction to it where season one definitely didn't really know how to tackle it, although it did start to come up. And there are, there are surprisingly uh, positive and Star Trek-y viewpoints in the, the episode with Clancy Brown, most notably, which essentially, and again, it's it's a little patronizing, it's a little paternalistic, but it definitely comes on the idea of, well, you know, there's a reason these people became terrorists. He's also coded as a Muslim, that 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 uh, that, be, that alien uh, character. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's generally a little bit, heartening to see that uh, so soon after 9-11 on Star Trek, uh, bearing in mind that a lot of people did make that argument uh, after 9-11, just like, hey, let's not fly off the handle and do anything crazy. But then uh, media kind of wore everyone down and said, no, 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 we got to get the terrorists, and you, if you don't do this, you're not an American. And and the people who said, um, actually kind of got, you know, marginalized more and more in, in media. It wasn't that they were all drummed out summarily so much as just it became a fight nobody wanted to have, and a lot of the big media companies just sort of went, well, we're not going to have that fight. And as a result, the conservative viewpoint took over more and more of the media, which is where I'd argue we still are today, unfortunately, and led to everything that happened in the next uh, 20 years after that. But um, the the Enterprise is clearly struggling with 9-11 throughout, throughout its entire run. As you say, you're right. By the time you get to season three, it's trying to keep its own identity as Star Trek. Uh, while still existing in the media ecosystem of 24 and everything else that was going on at this point. Afghanistan had been invaded at this point. All kinds of stuff um, had happened. Or Sorry, Afghanistan had been invaded for a while. Uh, Iraq War was 2003, I believe. Uh, so they, they, they obviously felt very awkward. And I think it's telling that Star Trek 
even though it's not the main reason, uh, Star Trek went off the air at, after a bit. Like, it couldn't cope with that level of political polarization in media and and uh, and the general cultural swing towards conservatism. It just couldn't deal with it. Um, and I think you can see that. And it's funny because essentially this was karmic... Uh, 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 getting bitten by karma because Trek had spent, you know, a decade or more being very sort of complacent politically, even though it, it was, you know, seen as the progressive show, as we said, I think it was the show that kind of went, Oh, we're all good liberals here. Let us have this argument, blah, blah, blah. And not really trying to delve deep and challenge itself and, and analyze some of its ideology. And as a result, when 9-11 happened and suddenly everyone was picking a side, it was like, oh, you know, that, that was kind of what happened. And, and it, it, you know, to its credit, it does try to handle with it, but it's sort of ill-equipped at that point to deal with it properly. Uh, I do appreciate, though, that Enterprise is sort of a step uh, in, even though it wasn't intended that way, like they didn't make the show that way for that reason, uh, it became being about like, well, they're not quite at the Star Trek level yet. This is the very beginning of Star Trek, and they're still dealing with a lot of the issues. So they could have Archer and those guys be very flawed human protagonists who were still sort of, who could therefore reflect, uh, you know, the issues that they were dealing with in 9-11. Um, but of course, they, they couldn't quite pick a side they couldn't you know they'd they'd have uh the you know makos on the enterprise who were uh who were uh, the militaristic things but they couldn't quite condemn them because that would be condemning the troops and that would be bad in 2003 you know so that kind of issue and then ultimately they decided to deal with it by not dealing with it doing a fourth season that kind of took all that political charge stuff at least on the surface off the table uh belt buried it it was still there but it was very buried and made it much more of a of a goofy actual trek prequel and then ended and then star trek spent you know decades waffling around and and we're now finally at a point where we feel like we can make star trek star trek can be a progress a, a strong voice for progressivism because that's something we actually need and it's being made by people who actually feel like we need star trek for a change <laughs> that's what's that's what's been happening in the in the more recent seasons of of uh, discovery so i think i think that point about we need star trek for a change both in both senses of the meaning of the word change is absolutely pivotal we need star trek for a change because we need star trek for a change i think your earlier point that media voices which said um actually in the lead up to war was sidelined or marginalized is really pivotal because if star trek doesn't exist to say um, actually, against rising conservative sentiment, then what's the point of Star Trek being progressive at all? If Star Trek is only progressive when there's a prevailing media or social consensus in favour of certain progressive outcomes, then Star Trek isn't progressive in any meaningful sense. Star Trek just in enjoys striking easy victories against defeated opponents. Now, ultimately, in 2003 and 2004, for all that Star Trek... You're absolutely right that Star Trek had been inured to a liberal consensus for so long that when that consensus broke down, Star Trek effectively went with the flow without any coherent idea of what its values meant in an environment in which not everyone agreed upon them. Now, 
I think it's I think it's really interesting that in both the season one finale of Discovery and the season one finale of Picard, we have effectively paralleling moments in which the lead characters are confronted with the prospect of imminent violence or imminent war between irreconcilable opponents and place themselves between those opponents to say, no, violence is not who we are. There is another way. This is a future in which we've evolved beyond that. Star Trek in the years in its most recent incarnations, in Beyond, in Discovery, and Picard, has repeatedly and ostentatiously taken anti-war stands or rejected the inevitability of conflict. And in doing so, I think Star Trek has in many ways been sort of trying to make up for that original sin, that at the most recent moment when America was choosing whether to go to all-out war with Iraq, Star Trek blinked and didn't take a stance and effectively um, chose to depict these attitudes without taking much of a stance as to how they fit into the broader Star Trek moral framework. I think that's really the original sin that a lot of these shows are trying to grapple with in the years since. And to their credit, I think the more recent shows have drawn their sense of why we need Star Trek now from a sense that it is in some way a political show in a way that Enterprise ultimately fell short of. Um, just one more thing before I throw back to you. I, 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 I don't mean to keep harping on Gene Roddenberry for... I, I don't want to keep harping on Gene Roddenberry. But in terms of your comments about him before, one of the reasons why I think we're speaking in relatively broad terms about the allegations that have been made against him is, as I've said, because it's been 30 years um, and that these are issues which have been... which are... I have stories which have been told and retold so many times that it is difficult to clearly identify the details of what he is said to have done, and it is difficult to it's difficult to identify the allegations with sufficient particularity that to it's difficult to identify in circumstances where it is driven to such an extent by innuendo and di- driven to such an extent by implication. But that is ultimately the reality that we have to reckon with in Gene Roddenberry and to hold the two conflicting thoughts in our head at once. At once he is someone who is in large measure responsible for a franchise to which we have devoted a lot of our lives. On the other hand, he is a man who has been accused of terrible things and we at once have to hold both thoughts in our heads at the same time, but we can't hold one thought in our head without holding the other. And that's part of the tension, as I've said, with Star Trek, that... When Star Trek has been bold, it has often been because of a man who has been accused of terrible things. And when Star Trek has been cautious, it has been because of a man who, in his own turn, has been accused of terrible things. And that we can't hold the show independent from the people behind it in that way. It's it's ultimately something where we have to... We have to hold both thoughts in our head at once without letting one ameliorate or reckon with or excuse the other. Uh, I did want to say one tiny little thing, though, uh, which was that um, it is true, like you, as we are already talking about uh, the moment where uh, uh, Koloth and, and Jadzia, it's Koloth, right? They, they, they hug it's each Cole. other. Core, it's core. I'm sorry. Uh, core and Jadzia have their uh, their big uh, their big uh, hug, and and he says, and as we said, it was uh, it was sort of uh, almost progressive by accident, but not really by accident because empathy was at its base, and that is, I think, the best way to tell stories 
in which there's that political charge to it. And I think there can be a danger sometimes in being a little too outspoken in your, even when you're completely in the right and you're saying the right thing, but making a, for a Hollywood TV show or movie to really make a show of, uh, of ostentatiously being progressive can sometimes lead to problems. It's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but it's almost, I would rather you just live those values and that they were part of the story you were telling automatically rather than stopping and turning to the camera and saying, look at how thoughtful we're being, look at how progressive we're being. Like, it's much better to just sort of let it play out and let it as an assumption. I mean, there's the other advantage, as I already said, when I grew up on Star Trek for... The, the, the good thing you could say about the 90s Star Trek is that I just assumed, oh yeah, racism's bad, it's not good, we're going to accept that as the baseline background radiation of this show. We're not we're not going to question that, really. And and you shouldn't. Like, I mean, yet you should question everything, but that's something you should... You, that's That matter has been settled, and you can take it for granted at this point. And it's okay to just tell that story in that regard. Um, so, uh, it's good. And actually, just I'm saying this, and it almost implies that Discovery isn't doing that. Discovery's mostly been very good. I mean, it presents uh, a, a, quite a lot of LGBT characters. Um, it does sort of occasionally pat itself on the back, but it's not making that huge a deal about it. It then goes forward and says, well, these characters are interesting because of this, and this is a separate thing that we're going to deal with um, in, in that regard. And, and of course, just by having uh, African-American lead and a number of other African-American characters. And there's there's interesting ideas. I, I'd say Discovery maybe early on made a bit of a show of Star Trek is back, baby, and it's progressive again. And, uh, and now after three, uh, after three seasons, we've settled in a little more and we've gotten, we've gotten into it. I don't, I think it's uh, significant that all three, uh, currently running Star Trek shows, I think I've mentioned this before, have, two of them have black women as their protagonists and the third has a black woman as a major lead, essentially the co-lead of the show, because that's about Picard and it has to be about Picard, obviously. Um, in a weird way, Lower Decks is <laughs> is the best at this, in that it just presents you with uh, with Mariner as as the and 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 Captain Freeman uh, as the leads, and doesn't make a big thing out of it. It's just that those are just the characters we're dealing with. Moving on, um, which you know we should be at in twenty twenty one. Obviously, that's that's a that's a fair uh, that's a fair way to handle it. But um, anyway, it's it's uh, it, it is something that um, you know Star Trek has been guilty of. It back in the day of just patting itself on the back a lot. And uh, so, you know, here's hoping that going forward, it'll be a bit more just sort of, okay, we're, that's how we are. And we're, we're moving for, we're moving on. Um, so I think uh, we're going to, unless you had a final thought or two there, Douglas, I was going to. There's one last thought I wanted to bring up and then we will well and truly wrap up. And I think that's the idea of how fast Star Trek's values can be how far Star Trek should live its values rather than explicitly tooting its own horn. And I think that, by and large, a lot of Star Trek's best examples of being progressive come from precisely that. When the show has been most ostentatiously promoting a progressive message is often when it's allowed itself to blind itself to precisely how short-sighted it's being. Star Trek is often never more dangerous than when it thinks it's being very, very progressive. But just to challenge that for one moment, Going back to, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, when we talked about the Omega Glory, 
that often Star Trek falls short of its ideals, not because it's explicitly being conservative, but just because it's using other genres that have conservative or reactionary ideas baked in, and it doesn't consider how those stand up in a Star Trek context. And of course, the greatest danger for Star Trek as a whole would be the extent to which the entire premise itself is suited with those ideals, and how far that limits Star Trek's idea ability to be, as it were, unconsciously progressive, or its idea ability to live those ideals and bake them into the show itself. It's a show which draws enormous inspiration from westerns, from um, tales of naval adventure, from Horatio Hornblower, from explorers from Earth's history, from um, the history of, for example, the British Empire and Captain Cook. How far one can, one can question how far a show that is based on these roots, that is based on these types of stories, and which to some extent draws upon the role that racism and sexism historically played in those stories, how far Star Trek can merely live its ideals, how far they can bake them into the fabric of the show, when the fabric of the show itself draws such inspiration from these kinds of models. As I said at the beginning of the show, how progressive can we really expect Star Trek to be? even in its lived everyday experience, when it's based on visiting the people who already live where no one has gone before. And I think I'll just finish on that thought. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a great uh, point to wrap up on. Um, so we're going to uh, end it for now. Um, and uh, once again, I'm Adam Prosser, and with me was Douglas McDonald-Norman. Um, I, uh, I, again, I have another podcast, What Mad Universe, at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe, and it's on Apple, uh, Apple iTunes and Stitcher and all the other podcatchers, uh, I, and I have a Patreon, you can see at the link that I just provided as well, uh, and I do comics and stories and stuff at Phantasmic Tales, P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M-I-C, Tales.com, um, and uh, so uh, I think we'll, we'll end it there for the evening. And until next time, um, live long and prosper. And we'll see you on the other side. <laughs>